Hey, this is Greta Johnson, co-host of Nerdette Podcast. You are hearing me right now because, well, you kind of love podcasts. Look at you. You're listening to one right now while you're at home or on the L or on the treadmill or I don't know exactly what you're doing. I'm not stalking you or anything. Or am I? That shirt looks great on you, by the way. So guess what? In 2016, WBEZ is putting on a whole slew of live podcast events across Chicago in something we are calling our Podcast Passport Series. What the heck is a podcast passport, you ask? Well, with the passport, you will travel to destinations throughout Chicago for live shows hosted by Nerdette and other WBEZ podcasts. Film spotting. Sound opinions. Curious City. Homemade stories. When you buy a passport, you will enjoy discounted shows and get early access to every show. You know, so you can get the best seats and actually look at us for once. That plus you'll get to go to a private podcast party in May. Hurry up. Don't wait. This kind of stuff goes super quickly and we want you there. Tickets and information for WBEZ's podcast passport series at wbez.org slash live podcasts. That's wbez.org slash live podcasts. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. But please, call me Caleb. Hello, Caleb. Do you have a name? Yes. Ava. I'm pleased to meet you, Ava. I'm pleased to meet you, too. When we asked listeners to name a favorite 2015 discovery recently, the name Alicia Vikander kept coming up, the co-star of a film we both liked quite a bit from the first half of the year, Ex Machina, in which Vikander plays an AI creation named Ava. I discovered her in 2012, Josh. I've given you credit for that already. Relax. (laughs) This week on the show, the discoveries of our movie year, plus a review of Brad Pitt, Ryan Gosling, and Christian Bale in the ensemble drama The Big Short, in which we discovered that Anchorman director Adam McKay can do more than broad comedy? Yes. Yes, he can. I'm trying to think of a more appropriate financial metaphor, maybe something about bust. Save it for your misguided review, Josh. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. This episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by Harry's. For guys who want a great shave experience for a fraction of what you're paying now, go to harrys.com and get $5 off your first purchase by entering the code FILMSPOTTING when you check out. We're also brought to you by MUBI, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. MUBI's Women Behind the Camera double bill closes with new talent, the auspicious debut of British director Cleo Barnard. That's The Arbor a previous film spotting Golden Brick winner. Last seen at the Cannes Director's Fortnite with her prize-winning feature, The Selfish Giant. She first grabbed our attention with this highly inventive twist on nonfiction cinema. I do love The Arbor. If you didn't see it back when we awarded it the brick in 2011, now is a great chance. Movie is also playing L for Leisure. They're proud to present the feature debut of American indie directors Whitney Horn and Lev Kalman, whose surreal featurette Blondes in the Jungle they showed earlier this year. Equal parts coy and droll, it's a deadpan, nostalgic recreation of 90s American hipsterism reminiscent of Whit Stillman. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. 
Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Mubi free for a month. In December, the film of the day is free to watch for its first 24 hours on the platform. So, in other words, if you're listening to this on the day the show was released, on Friday, the film will have gone online last night at midnight, and it's free to watch until 11.59 p.m. tonight. Just go to Mubi.com slash Filmspotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Filmspotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. For a few years now, we've been sharing our favorite movie discoveries. And to be honest, many of those new faces never really went on to find a role that allowed them to capitalize on that early promise. A few have, however, Carrie Mulligan, Miles Teller, Christoph Waltz, Creed director Ryan Coogler, to name a few. And it isn't always just actors and directors, Josh. Of course, we've had film composers make our lists. A couple years back, the 70s band Big Star was one of my picks. And this year, it was very hard to put together for me because I talked about at the halfway point how there were so many good performances by actresses this year. I have many good performances by actresses, whether lead or supporting, that were brand new faces to me. So that did provide a challenge. Two actresses are going to be on my list, as well as a band. So there we go. We're going to share those 2015 discoveries later in the show. Plus, we'll have the five finalists for this year's Golden Brick Award. And I'm going to share some thoughts on the movie we had originally planned to make our main review this week, Spike Lee's Incendiary Chirac. But first, what is director Adam McKay without his usual star, Will Ferrell? We find out with a big short. Michael, how are you? I found something really interesting. The whole housing market is propped up on these bad loans. They will fail. The housing market is rock solid. It's a time bomb. So Mike Burry, who gets his hair cut at Supercuts and doesn't wear shoes, knows more than Alan Greenspan. Dr. Mike Burry, yes he does. (laughs) You know what? I'm pissed off. American people are getting screwed by the big banks. And I am getting madder and madder. It's unbelievable. Then this guy walks into my office and says, There's some shady stuff going down. All the banks were having a big old party. A few outsiders saw it when no one else could. The whole world economy might collapse. I'm sure the world's banks have more incentives than greed. You're wrong. I'm not sure where it was, Adam, a text or an email, something like that. But in the flurry of screenings and screeners this past week, you shared this immediate reaction to the big short. All hail Adam McKay. In general, I'm with you there. As a director and writer, McKay has been behind some of my favorite Will Ferrell comedies. The other guys, Talladega Nights, where he managed to brilliantly corral the chaos of improvisational comedy. How do you like to picture Jesus, Adam, in a tuxedo t-shirt or as a mischievous badger? Mm. McKay is dealing with different material on The Big Short. This is still a comedy, but it's based on Michael Lewis's book about the handful of investors who saw the financial meltdown of 2008 coming before anyone else and made a profit off it. Instead of Will Ferrell, The Big Short has an ensemble cast that includes serious thespians Christian Bale and Ryan Gosling, as well as Brad Pitt and Steve Carell. Judging from your initial response, you clearly felt McKay had no difficulty transitioning his comedic style to this story. So I'm curious, what did you see in his work as a director here that makes him particularly worthy of our praise? Do you want the 10-second answer or the two-minute answer, Josh? I've, I've got two minutes. <laughs> okay, I'll go for that one. I, of course, should note that that 
line about Adam McKay, all hail Adam McKay, did come after you had already made it known that you were not on board with this movie. I think you saw the press screening of it about a week before I was able to catch up with it. Are you saying you were just trying to goad me? That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm glad you picked up on the dynamic here over the years, Josh. But but having now seen the film twice, I stand by that hyperbolic assessment. I love this movie, and I'm really curious to hear what you didn't like about it, and I'm really curious to hear specifically how you felt about one performance in particular, and that would be the performance of Christian Bale. Because we'll that's where I'm going to gonna start. Well, we'll get to it right away. Okay, go ahead. For me, I think, and we'll see if this bears out here, Josh, with you. I think his performance is a microcosm for the whole movie and very well could be the litmus test for one's enjoyment of the big short. His first scene, and he really does have the first scene where we meet one of these characters. It opens with some backstory and a voiceover and montages. He's the first character. He's Dr. Michael Burry that we meet, who's going to be part of this large ensemble. We do meet Ryan Gosling's character actually during the VO a little bit, but this is the first time we're really able to sit there and watch a character on screen and listen to him talk. And he's interviewing a job candidate, though, in the most unorthodox awkward way possible. He's really just rambling about the Great Depression, the collapse of the housing market, and the signs everyone missed. He goes to the tech bubble bursting in the early 2000s. Bale stutters. He mumbles. He's air drumming. He's drumming on his legs with some sticks. Don't forget the glass eye. Oh, I'm getting there, Josh. He's even doing something with his eyes where he frequently goes cross-eyed. And you do soon learn that he has a glass eye. At one point, after telling a story about his eye from childhood, he takes a dramatic pause and he just stares off to the side like he's frozen for a second, even though there's someone sitting right across from him who he's supposed to be engaging with. I described him the other day to someone as maybe having Asperger's, though I'm far from an expert, and I did a little bit of searching online, and apparently it is something he does have, or at least he believes he has. Bale clearly made the choice to go for it to lose himself in this guy's head, to lose himself within all the awkwardness of that physicality. And as you should know, and longtime listeners should know, I am usually immune to the charms of that type of really busy performance. I will almost always choose the really subtle, understated performance over one that's this showy. And I was immediately on guard for what was in store, having that be really the opening scene of the film. But by the end of the scene, Josh, I was laughing And I was fascinated. And I think the whole movie is sort of like Bale's Michael Burry. You've got McKay using zooms, racking focus, handheld cameras, photo montages, VO, breaking the fourth wall, freeze frames, flashbacks, flash frames. And there are many other little techniques on display. But just like Burry, and I would throw in Steve Carell's Mark Baum character as well, it's all over the place. And yet I found its focus to be intense, clear, and accurate. Throbbing beneath all that energy and the bluster and the anger is a deep wound. And McKay is clearly determined to expose that wound, as are Bale and Carell, I think, with their characters. And it needed to be exposed. They all pull it off, Josh, while being funny as hell, too. I laughed out loud at this movie multiple times, even on the second viewing. Actually, the second viewing, I found it even funnier. Somehow, Adam McKay juggled all these characters, that big ensemble, All this data, the complex financial maneuvering, and gave us a movie that's equal parts economics lesson, agitprop, cultural indictment, character study, and comedy. All hail Adam McKay. You don't give an actor like Christian Bale a glass eye. That's that's like 
that's like giving an arsonist a match. <laughs> you, you do now. No, no. This <laughs> that is the worst thing you could do for someone like him. And that, he's an actor. I'm, you know, I'm hot and cold on it. I don't feel strongly either way. It's really not noticeable is, after that opening scene, though. No, no. He's he's chewing on this thing the whole movie mm-hmm. long. Every scene, McKay lets his actors go wild in this film. No, and Carell is one of them as well. That opening sequence with Carell, where he barges into some sort of support meeting hilarious and is the it's not funny at all <laughs> yeah, it's it the, he's the loudest guy in the room and you you know you get his characterization within his first three lines and he takes a call in that scene and interrupts everyone else and goes storming out he he proceeds to do that for the rest of the film and i would say that he is the better embodiment of this movie where it is repetitive and it is loud and it is in your face and those two performances are, you know, my initial response to this movie is that it was Spotlight's evil twin. And what I meant by that is here we have another ensemble film investigating a recent real world scenario. And whereas that movie, I'm not saying this is the only way you could do it, but what we both appreciate about that movie is the way it's actors, big actors who could go big like Bale can go big, but someone like Michael Keaton or Stanley Tucci, they burrow themselves into their characters all in purpose of serving the story. And we have the opposite here. Now, I'm not saying they had to go that exact same route with the big short, but the route that they've taken and these performers taken have not served the story well. And I think the aesthetic you're talking about is completely at odds with those performances because everything you described the focuses, the quick zooms in, the freeze frames. It's the aesthetic of a documentary film, essentially, so that it's giving us this impression that it's being caught on the fly or this is raw stock footage. There's an element of realism to it, in other words. And that is at odds with completely unrealistic performances. Mm. Now, they may have they may have their elements of humor because they are going that big. I do think I'll give you Ryan Gosling. I think he's the funniest guy oh, in the film. Great. He's great. And it's part because he manages to bring it about in – he gives us a characterization of a guy, his investment banker. These are all guys who are eccentrics. That's what they share in common. Not only did they were they ahead of this thing than everyone else – but they were a little bit weird. And so you they're do outsiders. And so they're, they're outsiders. Alienated. And yeah. so Carell and Bale play that up to the stratosphere. Gosling, I think, brings it down just a notch and makes his scenes still funny. I'm not saying this had to be deadly serious like Spotlight. I do like how he's always talking in these everything's a metaphor for him. He he almost seems yeah. more interested in the the persona of the art of the deal. Than the deals, you know, he has this he's assistant. Not, he's with not him. really a good salesman. That's what I love about <laughs> no, him. And he has this assistant who's always bumbling through their presentations. So, so yeah, he was good. A little more modulated than the other two, who are really the anchors and the unfortunate anchors for me for the picture. So you're offering us a chance to short this pile of blocks. How? With something called a credit default swap. It's like insurance on the bond, and if it goes bust, you can make 10 to 1, even 20 to 1 return, and it's already slowly going bust. 10 to 1, 20 to 1, no way. And no one's paying attention. No one is paying attention because the banks are too busy getting paid obscene fees to sell these bonds. But wait, you are the bank. When you work for the bank, I bet your margins are pretty nice and fat. Let's not talk about my margins, by the way. Being nice and fat. That's a nice shirt. Do they make it for men? Aren't you the bank? I work for the bank. I don't think like a bank. Big bank, small bank, I like to make money. All right? 
We just wanted different things, and we saw different things, frankly, with this movie. I'm glad they weren't modulated any differently. I thought that energy, as I said in that bluster, just fit the overall tone of the film and the anger of this movie. And I think that the spotlight comparison is an interesting one, of course, but that movie is about journalism, and those characters are reserved, objective, non-players in that scandal and that controversy that they were unmasking. Sure, Here different you have, personalities, yeah, absolutely. completely different personalities. So that bigness reflects exactly who these people are. And actually, the fact that they turned you off in a way, you probably didn't enjoy spending much time with them. I think that only fits in with the fact that they're those outsider characters. That's such a key component to this film that all of the players, and we haven't touched on the other little group yeah, here, but it, this it guy, wasn't Charlie. A, it wasn't a likability thing for no, me. I, I mean, I, I, I don't get have that. that issue. I get that, but there's no way you like Steve Carell's character, especially after that opening scene. And I think that that does fit with a huge part of this film in terms of setting them up and establishing them as completely outside of this Wall Street system. The stuff about the documentary you mentioned is interesting because I didn't see it that way. Of course, some of those techniques in terms of handheld camera and the racking focus a little bit, it makes you think of a documentary. Extensive use of stock footage. Yeah, that's true as well. There's no doubt he's going for that to an extent, but especially with the voiceover and the playfulness and all the inserts and things like that, it was so clearly a technique and it was so clearly artificial that it never felt to me like a case where Adam McKay was actually trying to suggest realism. I mean, anytime you've got Ryan Gosling talking to you right from the beginning of the film, you know that this isn't a documentary. You know that it's not really trying to be. So that was just all part of this larger visual strategy, which obviously really worked for me and where I really would urge you. I know it's not going to happen. You don't want to see this movie again. I'd go watch it again right now. That's how entertaining I find this movie to be. I watched a good chunk of it again. Did you? Yeah. There was one thing in particular I wanted to explore that we can maybe get to. But The last at least 45 minutes of this movie, one thing I really noticed when I watched it again last night was how the frenetic pace, all that visual flair we've discussed, how it really does all dissipate the further and further we get into this movie. And as these characters go deeper and deeper down this rabbit hole and become more and more disillusioned as they learn about the depths of the fraudulence of the system that they're, of course, a part of, it really calms down. Steve Carell's character really calms down. The camera stops moving as much, frankly, just to start right there. The camera, the editing, everything about the pace of this film does change as these characters change. When we're introduced to them, they're all larger than life, and Wall Street is going gangbusters, and everybody thinks that they're going to be millionaires. They're just waiting for their turn. What we see over the course of the movie is that disillusionment, and they become further and further alienated from the establishment. The movie changes pace with them, and I really respect that. That's that's what I rewatched because I, I wanted to take another look at some of the techniques McKay was using and try to understand a little bit better what they may have been going for. The last 20 minutes are a mournful montage, really. It's mm -hmm. extended, and it does interweave us with the characters a little more elegantly and has that tone that you're talking about. I'd agree with that. But at the same time, this is what I wanted to check. It also had it, – it becomes essentially – an activist documentary at the end of that montage where it has Gosling's voiceover championing us as, you know, when we would get uh, documentaries about climate change or, what, or whatever social cause there might be. It takes on that sort of tone, a very serious tone 
to it. And I felt Playful that too. a little. I mean, he comes well, on and says, he comes on and says, he does, oh, a, you he expected, does a fake out. Yeah. yeah he does I mean, a fake out. So there's so. playfulness in there, but it's still to expected there to be deliver aren't. its activist message. And it still uses that stock footage technique, which again, I, I was just, you know, there are things like they're cultural markers, okay, mm-hmm. throughout the film. Yeah. So, but here we get something like a shot of an iPhone and then a shot of an American soldier appears to be hugging his wife. Mm-hmm. There's a shot after that of a couple in a limo. I think it's I marking didn't recognize. time. No, it's, it's marking it's time mar- and it's marking okay. the, the mood of the country at the moment. Well, is it or is it not? A lot of those, that technique could have been used to provide some some really clever contextual commentary. And I think those inserts did. No, Top Gun, Top Gun. I mean, like they're not trying to be funny. There. The one you I'm talking about funny, in that but... last 20 minute segment, because that's what, uh, you know, I, I really wanted to re-explore. There's, it's not doing that sort of contextual commentary that it could have. It's moving quickly, but it's not really adding anything more than, you know, some sort of standard documentary might do. So, I understand there is a transition going on there. I'm just not quite as impressed about it as you were. I want to get also to this uh, this idea of the clarity of the film, which has something to do with it, mm-hmm. because I've heard <laughs> completely different reactions to the movie that this is crystal clear and absolutely impressed that they were able to make this That's me. so yeah. obvious, and people who are like completely confused by this whole thing. Hmm. So. You were on the clear end, obviously. I was. And, of course, I should say that with the disclaimer that I really don't understand anything about how the financial markets work. It really is all completely Greek to me. And if you're saying to me, well, Adam, in every single moment that they're talking about something, did you know exactly what processes they were talking about? And did you know how they would sort of react to certain moments? No, not necessarily. But I did understand in every scene, Josh, what each character was after. And when they were talking to someone at Goldman Sachs or they were talking to, in this case, Brad Pitt plays sort of an advisor. He's the top billed actor in this movie, but he's really a supporting player at most. He probably has the least amount of screen time of any of the major players in the film. When they're talking to him, I did know how they were going to react in those moments. I did know what they were after. That's the key thing in any kind of drama, obviously, is understanding what the character's objectives are. And I thought that was incredibly clear. And by the end of it, I did truly feel like I understood the various steps that our economy took in order to get to the point that it did. And actually, I was thinking about this movie the second time as a crime story, because that's really what it is. It's a crime story where the corpse is the American economy. The culprit is the entire American financial system. And the detectives aren't your normal detectives who are trying to piece things together after the fact. They already know all the pieces. They're just waiting for the picture to become clear. And they're actually betting on it and they're going to benefit from it. But that really is how it plays out. So I love the fact that the movie makes a decision to follow what I'm sure is in Michael Lewis's book, which is we don't just get them sitting around talking about, well, here's what the numbers show. Here's what the data says. These mortgages are all bad. They go, no, you know what? If we're going to do this, we have to understand it. And they go off just like detectives investigating a case. They go to Miami. They go to different housing districts. They go to real estate agents. They understand the process. And by them being the investigators for us, I'm along for the ride. I did understand where this movie was going, and I didn't really feel lost at any point by all the financial talk. So it seems to me there's two levels of clarity going on here, and they both obviously worked for you. One of them worked for me, and that was the big picture thing. I can definitely say I came out of the big short with a firmer understanding of the collapse in general, what precipitated it. 
how the banks conducted themselves during it and how we got to where we are now. So that I was grateful for, and I thought they did a good job of it. And they did it, again, to use your word, playfully. The thing where Margot Robbie would show up as herself in a bubble bath and say, and say I'm going to explain, is it like derivatives or something yeah. like that to you? You know, the, those are funny and they work. They help me to understand the big picture. I was not with you in terms of how the individual characters really? were affected. Absolutely because not. Because that's where I the genius that this movie is where comes in. it lost. By the end where Michael Burry is either collapsing or morally collapsing but financially gaining, mm-hmm. I did not follow what was at stake for him in those scenes. And I can say the same thing for not all of the scenes. Some of the many characters' trajectories are a bit more clear. But it was at the individual character level where things got murky for me, even though they spent a lot of time spelling it out, exactly what they were attempting to do or why they were making this sale or holding off on that sale. And a lot of time is spent on that stuff. And that's fine. I'm not saying I needed to come out of this with, you know, a master's degree in finance. But what was missing for me was the sort of connection when I didn't have that connection between the details and the effects on them as people. Hmm. It took me add on top of that, the performances being so heightened. It took me out of this film as having any sort of human layer to it at all. See, what you just described as a negative is precisely a positive for me. I was always keenly aware of what was at stake for the individuals from scene to scene. I think that really is. I mean, I said the genius of the movie and what Adam McKay does, it comes through in the editing, the way he not only juggles all these storylines, but makes these flesh and blood characters, despite an opening scene like that with Christian Bale, where that performance goes, where the director takes him and where the story goes. I felt like I was always in tune with them. And I love the little touches. There are these just nice little moments that I think a lesser movie would not give us down to things like Ryan Gosling sitting at a table being yelled at by Steve Carell's men. And the whole time we do glimpse at one point that Carell's just looking at him for once. He's actually the calm, quiet guy who's just staring at Gosling and he's trying to read him for a certain kind of tell to see what the situation is. And he's not losing his cool because he knows that Gosling isn't losing his cool while everyone around him is in total chaos. The Burry character, Christian Bale. I love the moment where his partner, who's against this whole thing from the beginning, doesn't want to go down this path with him, comes and says, basically, I want out. We can't do this anymore. And he points out something that Christian Bale's character theoretically should have seen so clearly, Josh, which is that all these people that are letting him invest their money in this scheme, they could pull their money out. And if they pull their money out, everything falls apart. And you see it in Bale's face that despite all the things he's considered, all the angles he's playing there, it never occurred to him that all these people wouldn't trust him because he's so absolutely sure of how right he is. And I love that heartbreak. I love that moment of recognition on Bale's face when that happens. And the movie is full of those little moments. And at the end, there are no heroes. Like McKay is doing something fairly daring here, where dramatically, because they're the main characters, we inevitably find ourselves rooting for these people who are outsiders. They're the only people who are right about something that everyone says they're crazy for believing. So they're underdogs. We can't help but get caught up in that. It seems like a very American story. The whole time, though, recognizing that rooting for them means rooting for the collapse of the U.S. financial system and all the repercussions that come with that. And the characters, Josh, ultimately come to recognize that as well. So that's, for me, where blending all these elements of, sure, there's a little bit of propaganda here. There's absolutely an element that's trying to get you fired up, but 
it's also a character study about these men. Without understanding these men, we don't understand how this all happens. Yeah, completely understand and sympathize with the sardonic anger, I think is what you'd call it that this movie has. I just wish it also had the coherence to go with that conviction. Hmm. Just not there for me. We definitely saw two completely different films. The Big Short is currently out in limited release, including here in Chicago starting this weekend. It opens wide on December 21st. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. We've managed to whittle our short list of golden brick contenders down to five finalists. Find out who made the cut next. Plus, my thoughts on Spike Lee's return to rabble-rousing form, Chirac. Stay with us. If I had one wish for Christmas this year, there'd be no more sorrow, there'd be no pain or tears. If it was up to me, darling, I would build you a world of love. Oh, oh, listen now. We would gather round that, that big Christmas tree, and we'd sing the songs. We wouldn't have no worries Except for the weather Watch the snow fall Go hang some mistletoe, y'all It's a world of love Let me tell you something That every man would see What the true spirit all you filmmakers or aspiring filmmakers out there, we wanted to let you know that this episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by the Vermont College of Fine Art MFA in Film. They offer a two-year student design, project-driven graduate program of professional mentorships for your scripts, fiction and nonfiction filmmaking, and hybrid and transmedia projects. Exciting, affordable, and intense. Refine your creative vision as you develop intensely personal stories in an independent practice. For more, visit vcfa.edu film. We're also brought to you once again by our friends at Harry's. Josh, I find shopping impossible at the holidays. Maybe you have a guy out there that is tough to buy for, whether it's your dad or a brother or a boyfriend or husband. Harry's is here to help you in your time of need. They have something for every guy on your list. They have holiday shaving sets at all different price points starting at $15. And as a special offer for Film Spotting listeners, Harry's will give you $5 off your first purchase so you can impress for less when you go to harrys.com and enter promo code FILMSPOTTING. I have talked about Harry's for about a year now and how much I enjoy using their product. I do have to shave every day, and Harry's is the razor of choice for me. They not only make their own high-quality grooming products, but they also give 1% of their sales and 1% of their time back to the communities they serve so you can feel good about a gift that gives back. And finding that perfect gift from Harry's couldn't be easier. Their website, harrys.com, is easy to use. It takes less than 30 seconds to place an order, and they offer a great customer service experience to support your purchase. All their products are extremely sleek, and they cost half as much as other Razor brands. And here's the best part. The only thing harder than shopping for a Christmas gift for me, Josh, is wrapping Christmas gifts. And Harry's set with the razor handle, the extra razor blades, the shave cream, and the cool travel kit to hold everything all comes in a box that looks great so you don't even have to wrap it. 
I'm a terrible rapper. I feel your pain. If you go to harrys.com right now, there's a special offer. Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with the code FILMSPOTTING. So don't wait. Economy shipping for the holiday ends on December 18, so act now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com and enter coupon code FILMSPOTTING at checkout. Make every morning he shaves feel like a holiday. We thank Harry's for their support of Film Spotting. Marky Mark doing midair crunches. Adam Light opening scenes in bunches. Making a good first impression. Is that the real key to success? Ceiling scenes, well, quite a few did it. But Ryan Gosling's buddy walked away with it. In the place beyond the pines. Glad Adam made up his and there's maybe the best reason to come to our upcoming live show. Welcome back to Film Spotting, the great Abraham Levitan giving his musical recap of the first half of our 2013 rap party that was held back in January 2014. Scheduling conflicts kept us from doing a live show last winter, but we are back this year. As we've announced previously, the date is Saturday, January 9th. It's here in Chicago, back at the main stage, which is just off the red line. Tickets are available now. And Josh, we're thrilled to have Abraham back for the show. And of course, we'll be there. We're still trying to work out who our special guests may be, but there will be one or two. And we've got some fun ideas, maybe changing up the format a little bit and some of the categories that we're going to get into as we look back at the year in cinema. We will, of course, share more information as it's available. And you can get tickets now at filmspotting.net. Our website is also where you can get some free stuff, Josh. You might be lucky enough to get a few free things. And I meant to get to this last week as we shared our top five film books inspired by the conversation with Kent Jones about the book and movie Hitchcock Truffaut. We have a book to give away, a movie book to give away, The First King of Hollywood, which is The Life of Douglas Fairbanks. It's by Tracy Gessel. It's a new book from Chicago Review Press. First King of Hollywood has never before seen photos of Fairbanks and private love letters between him and Mary Pickford. The publisher's teaser says Fairbanks shaped our idea of the Hollywood hero, and yet history seems to have forgotten him. Silent film buffs and fans of old Hollywood will relish in hearing about Fairbanks' genius. He was the first Robin Hood, the original Zorro, and his eccentricities, like the private running track he built beside his film studio so that he could jog in the nude. You have one of those at your house, Josh. How <laughs> I'm getting eccentric one now. is that? <laughs> More information about the book is at filmspotting.net. We'll put it in our show notes. And if you want to enter to win that free book, we will pick one Film Spotting listener randomly and send it off to you. All you have to do is send us an email with your name and address and Fairbanks in the subject line. That's all you got to do. No hoops to jump through, no questions to answer. Just send us Fairbanks in the subject line, and we will pick one lucky winner. We have some movie passes to give away as well, and we have more than one, Josh. But our Chicago-area listeners, of course, can get a chance to win an Admit 2 pass to see Youth. This is the latest from Italy's Paolo Sorrentino. His movie, The Great Beauty, was the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar winner last year. This is during its run of engagement. It's out now in Chicago and stars Michael Caine and Harvey Keitel. There is a link to enter to win those free passes over at our website, filmspotting.net. And that's where we like to pose our poll questions to you. You can vote in the current film spotting poll now. We're asking you to name your favorite film of 2015, despite the fact that your favorite film of 2015 may not have been released yet. 
hashtag Hateful Eight. Yeah, you, you didn't make that screening, I did you? I couldn't make it. The one screening, I, of course, had a conflict. I'm just going to luxuriate in this week or so I have where I've seen Hateful Eight and you haven't. Mm, yeah, enjoy it. <laughs> enjoy it. The options we gave you, Ex Machina, Inside Out, Mad Max Fury Road, The Martian, Spotlight, and Other. So far, Josh, this poll is playing out pretty much exactly like the poll we took at mid-year. You've got Spotlight and The Martian. Later releases so far trailing those other films that were all released in the first half of the year. Other is currently in second place with multiple votes going to Carol, Sicario, and Creed, among many others. You can voice your opinion or, you know, just voice your irritation at having to choose it all right now at filmspotting.net. I feel so awkward and ugly and naive and lonely. I know how you feel. I have no friends. I don't want to go to school ever again. Nobody loves me. Maybe I should kill myself. Nah, alienation is good for your art. Maybe I should paint a picture. I should paint a picture. It doesn't matter what kind of art you do, just, you just have to do it. That's Susanna Shulman as the voice of cartoonist Eileen Kaminsky and Belle Pauli as Minnie in The Diary of a Teenage Girl. It's one of the five finalists for the 2015 Golden Brick Award, which goes to the overlooked or underseen movie of the year. I say voice of cartoonist Eileen Kaminsky because that scene features Belle Pauli's Minnie, the teenage girl of the title, talking to a cartoon drawing of Kaminsky who floats along beside Minnie. That's the sort of formal ambition we like to look for in these Golden Brick nominees. It definitely is, though. I wouldn't say, as much as I enjoyed those scenes, those aren't the moments that really make The Diary of a Teenage Girl, for me, such a special movie and one that people really do need to see. A couple weeks back on the Golden Brick preview show, we announced the Golden Brick shortlist, which was about 15 movies. We want to announce the final five right now to give you time hopefully to catch up with them most are available on dvd and or streaming because we are going to ask you to weigh in with your pick for this year's ultimate golden brick winner which we'll probably get to in a couple weeks we may even announce at the live show at the main stage on january 9th the five finalists are the diary of a teenage girl directed by marielle heller it is the only finalist not currently available for viewing. Unfortunately, Josh, it does have a DVD release scheduled for January 19th. So after the fact, this one's going to hurt it in the voting, at least among listeners. We'll see how our critics panel does. And we'll get to a little bit more on that in just a second. But The Diary of a Teenage Girl, definitely one of the final five contenders. Another contender is Buzzard from Joel Petrikas. This is one we gave a full review to earlier in the year. It is on DVD now and also available to stream on Amazon, free for Prime members. I love that we've recently been getting a bunch of tweets from listeners who heard the Golden Brick preview show, heard that replay of our review, and have been thanking us for exposing them to not only Petrikas, but the movie star, Joshua Burge. Expose, that's a good word for that movie. Yeah, it is. <laughs> the Duke of Burgundy is another finalist. That's from Peter Strickland, also on DVD, and it's streaming on Netflix. Tangerine, this is from Sean Baker, DVD and streaming on Netflix as well. And one more finalist here. Man, I think we reviewed this one, full review, way back in January, possibly so. February. What We Do in the Shadows from Jermaine Clement and Taika Waititi, the vampire docu- mock documentary <laughs> yeah. comedy. I guess you'd call it. I think you can call it that. It's very funny. It is really funny. You can also get it for purchase on various digital platforms. And I mentioned critics weighing in. We have talked about doing a new type of voting this year where it's not just me and you and maybe some input from our wonderful co-producer Sam Van Hallgren and then the listeners voting in a poll at our website as well, but actually putting together kind of an all-star 
jury. We'll probably get some members of the Film Spotting podcast family, the next picture show. They have like 17 hosts, so that should be very easy. We'll get some diverse How are we going to work choices. out the math on that? I don't know. I'll leave it up to you, Josh. Oh, certainly. Great. I couldn't but even follow the big short. We are in trouble. I take that back. But we'll get them involved. We'll probably get Matt and Allison from Film Spotting SVU involved. Michael Phillips will vote as well, and we'll do kind of a running tally, and we will weigh your vote as well. The listener's vote will count just as much as my vote or Josh's or anyone else's. Relinquishing a lot of power here. Are you comfortable yep. with that, Adam? Well, no, but... <laughs> You're going to do it anyway. I'm, I'm ready to change, Josh. The new year is approaching. Repeat after me. I will deny all rights of access or entrance. I will deny all rights of access or entrance from every husband, lover, or male acquaintance. From, from every husband, lover, or male acquaintance. Teona Paris as Lysistrata in Spike Lee's Chirac, his controversial adaptation of the ancient Greek comedy by Aristophanes. It was supposed to be our main review this week, and it just didn't work out for me. I could not get to the theater to see it. I am very disappointed. I plan to see it before we do our top 10 films of the year show. However, Josh, and it sounds like you may want me to be sure to do that. Oh, absolutely. You have to. And it's it's been a while, I think, for me at least, that we said that about Spike Lee. I mean, it was just this year where I reviewed a film of his rather unfavorably, The Sweet Blood of Jesus, which I was very intrigued about, but did not work at all. This, Chirac, this is the work of the guy who made, yes, Do the Right Thing, but also Bamboozled, She's Gotta Have It, and School Days. Now, those may not all be on most people's lists of his best films, but they're all of a piece in what he can bring to the cinema uniquely, his style, his voice, and his vision, and Chirac is directly in line with those. I think all those films are, you know, they take the most risks, they ruffle the most feathers, which this one has already done. It did it before it came out and is still generating a lot of conversation, but I think they also deliver the most returns, and this works on the level of a really fiery sex comedy. It's hilarious, but also taps into the tragedy of the underlying issue that it's exploring, which is gun violence. You know, it's there's a lot of talk about how it represents Chicago, but really this could be applied to any American urban center that's hmm. suffering from this sort of violence. Now, you mentioned the the Greek comedy Lysistrata that it's adapted from, and it's important to say that that was a comedy. I mean, it had the same conceit about a woman who got everyone else in the village, all the other women, to go on a sex strike so their men would stop fighting the Peloponnesian War. But it's very much a body sex comedy in its wordplay. And Spike Lee brings that right over so it fits naturally. He's working here, the screenplay he co-wrote with Kevin Wilmot, and he directed CSA, the Confederate States of America, in 2004. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a similar, not entirely successful, but very interesting fake documentary that imagines what would have happened if the Confederacy had won the Civil War. And so these are, these are two guys who aren't, they're not afraid to tackle tough topics with, uh, you know, irreverence 
and wit. The other great thing about Chirac is that it's almost a musical, as School Days was. So there are extended production numbers here that work really well. And uh, they even have the characters speaking in verse for much of the film. I wish it had been more consistent with that. It's maybe 85% of a movie, but just getting into that rhythm and that flow, and it, it really works. Samuel Jackson has a narrator part where he's speaking directly to the camera and uh, is just really funny in how he works the rhyming as well, carrying us through this story. So there's so much to get into with this movie. I might end up talking about one aspect of it further in our discoveries picks, but I really hope people go out to see this, especially if they've written off Spike Lee, because um, he's absolutely back with this one. I was already excited to see it. You've made me even more excited to see it, Josh. That's Chirac. It is out now, certainly playing here in Chicago, and I'm sure it's available in select cities as well. We'll link to more information in our show notes at filmspotting.net. It is Film Spotting Top 5 time when we come back, and we're going to be sharing our favorite 2015 discoveries. Adam, have you heard about this young actress named Alicia Vikander? I'm familiar. Stay with us. Folks, a quick interruption as we wanted to mention again the Vermont College of Fine Art MFA in film. There are so many listeners out there, Josh, who you know want to go to film school or are thinking about going to film school. And I really do wish that there was a program like this one around when I was applying to film schools decades ago. I'm ashamed to admit. They offer a two-year student design project-driven grad program with professional mentorships for your scripts, fiction and nonfiction filmmaking, and transmedia projects. Each semester starts with an on-campus residency week of screenings. You get workshop lectures along with preparation of an independent study to plan your personal projects. The students then return home to work independently, and they meet monthly via Skype as those projects unfold. The MFA program is designed to fit into the life you have and the films you make. Some students will come to the program with a project in mind, then they join the program to refine that creative voice. Vermont College's faculty and the special residency artists come from around the globe. They also work in every genre of film and time-based media, so they have a wide range of experience in all aspects of film practice. Now, the students at Vermont College, they're not locked into tracks. Instead, they're encouraged to explore and experiment in any area of filmmaking that their project takes them, of course, under the mentorship of accomplished professionals. So it's exciting, it's affordable, it's intense. You can refine your creative vision as you develop intensely personal stories, all in an independent practice. 
Just visit vcfa.edu slash film. Now for donations and some thank yous, but first a nod to our featured artist this week, who I think is going to come up in a little bit more detail in a moment, Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings from their new album, It's a Holiday Soul Party. If you are in the Chicago area and looking for New Year's Eve plans, Jones and the Dap Kings will play the House of Blues on December 31st. You can get more information about that at SharonJonesAndTheDapKings.com. I did want to share this note because back in August, Josh, after our director muse poll, we got an email from a listener named Gene who wrote in and said, it pains me that you guys left off from the poll, perhaps cinema's greatest muse slash director, Yasujiro Ozu and Satsuko Hara. She is a film icon. I hope you will revisit Ozu and particularly their films together. I actually favor Late Spring, but she is a delight to watch in all of their collaborations. So we marked that and set it aside and realized that we probably did need to become more familiar with her. We have both seen her perform in Ozu films, but maybe weren't aware of her and her stature within the film industry. And unfortunately, Hera passed away at the age of 95. It happened back on September 5th, but maybe... Jean speculated because of her reclusive nature. The word just kind of got around here recently, around Thanksgiving. That's when The Guardian published their obituary about Satsuko Hara, and we heard again from Jean. So just wanted to acknowledge that great collaboration and maybe put a name out there that some listeners are familiar with. Maybe some definitely are not and want to become more acquainted with. We'll link to that obituary in our show notes. Let's get to our donors. We'll start with Derek P. in Chicago, Shad in Evan City, Pennsylvania. Thank you very much. And a new Bucca show donor. And she's donated before Vanessa in Westchester, New York. I've just made my yearly Bucca show donation and eagerly await the Golden Brick Awards, which is always one of my favorite segments. I'd have nominated The Witch. I saw it at an all-night horror movie marathon and Halloween party at a local indie theater at around three in the morning, and it managed to keep me riveted throughout. It's a film with a few images that truly shock, but is never gratuitous and has many quiet moments showing a familial love that makes everything that happens almost more tragic than frightening. Plus, it's restrained enough that I bet Adam would be able to watch 85% of the movie without someone to cover his eyes. I wouldn't bet on it. I would have included both director Robert Eggers and the young leads, Anya Taylor-Joy and Harvey Scrimshaw, as best surprises slash up-and-comers. The two child actors who played the twins were excellent as well as creepy twins who inspire dread, not by any overt action, but just because they behave like real children and children are terrifying. (laughs) Or maybe it's just me. Okay, Vanessa. Inspired by your listener who conducted a family death match, my own family pulled our own pantheon, and you'll be saddened to learn that of a final four, including Die Hard, Young Frankenstein, The African Queen, and A Night at the Opera, we went with the Marx Brothers. Looking forward to many more great discoveries and discussions in 2016. Great email. Thank you very much, Vanessa. I think that admission that the Marx Brothers won that family pantheon poll is scarier than the witch sounds, actually. No, I joke, of course. 
The Witch is a good pick, though. I thought about Eggers as the Witch is one I saw at Sundance, and right. I thought about him hmm. for our discoveries because that is a creepy movie. Really? I don't think you'd make it through. <laughs> a Silver Club donation came to us from Andrew B. in Washington, D.C., and not very far away, probably. David in Silver Spring, Maryland, wrote in and said, I've been listening off and on since Josh joined the show, but a few months ago, I got a new job and a longer commute, which gives me the excuse slash opportunity to catch the shows more regularly, and I eagerly await a new show every week. I figured it's time. Thank you, David. A new $5 a month donor, Joe in Baker's Arms, Leighton, East London. He wrote in as well. I thought I'd drop you an email to a company finally paying my debt to the postman. No one says paying the dealer anymore, it seems. I've been listening since at least 2010. I know this as I just searched my email, and I emailed you in 2010 about Shutter Island and described myself as having been listening for a while now. This means you have accompanied my life for a very long time. You've led to so many wonderful discoveries, one of my favorite films of all time being The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. If I look back on the year using Letterbox, which I heard of through film spotting, so many of the best films I saw have that film spotting connection. Fireworks Wednesday from Oscar Farhadi, Tangerine, Hard Eight and Junoon, Harlan County, USA, The Lonely Wife, The World of Apu, etc. For my birthday this year, my girlfriend even embroidered a t-shirt with the phrase, frequently we hear the passing trains. Gotta love it. This is a phrase used by Josh at some point during the Satchajit Ray Marathon. I think the phrase sums up perfectly the tension between tradition and modernity that runs throughout the Opu trilogy, with modernity thundering and threatening at the edge of traditional society, but also fascinating in creating new connections between people, just like trains once did. It's pretty difficult to explain to people what's on the t-shirt when I wear it. It's kind of a quote from a film by an Indian director from the 1950s, 60s. Well, more a trilogy of films. Well, actually, it's a quote from a podcast review of those films. Clearly, this makes me absurdly pretentious. Anyway, this is just a very long way of saying thank you and keep doing what you are doing. Well, thank you, Joe. And I love this batch of feedback so much because we have Vanessa and her follow-up to our emailer last week and this family death match, which I really hope catches on. And I want to hear from more listeners who go through it as well. I think, Josh, our families need to participate in a similar one. Not, For not sure. crossing over. No, because, that would not work. No, it would not work. Our choices would be way, way different, I'm sure. But I think that would be fun to do. And then we've got... Joe here, and I wonder if, as we move forward, listeners should note phrases like that from movies like those Satchajit Ray films that could be their very own film spotting t-shirts that nobody will get, but have phrases and quotes just like that on I wouldn't it. have guessed that one. No, no, I wouldn't have either, but if we saw it, we'd know what it <laughs> That's was a true. reference to, and that is we'd true. feel really cool. Now, because Joe sent us such a generous donation, $5 a month, he does note, if there were two things I would want more of, it's one, get back on the marathons. We were just lamenting that ourselves. And two, continue to focus on directors who are not straight or male or white for those marathons. This will bring different perspectives. How about a Chantal Ackerman or Vera Chitlova marathon? I've just caught up with Al Mayer's Folly and We Eat the Fruit of Paradise and loved them both. So yeah, we really want to get back to the marathons. We have Elaine no plan May for that. that bill. Elaine May is still sitting out there. And yes, of course, she is a female director. And we definitely try to be diverse or are trying to be more diverse with our choices there for those marathons. Chantel Ackerman, I don't think is listed on our current sort of list of possibilities, but she should be. Claire Denis is there. Agnes Varda is there, along with 
a few other female filmmakers, but I think Chantelle Ackerman certainly belongs on that list. We also got a gold level donation from Larry H. in Austin, who says few people listen to more podcasts than I do yet for the last six or seven years. Film spotting has remained my favorite. The one I look forward to the most Keep up the great work, guys. It is truly appreciated. And then the two final comments, the two final donations we got that we teased last week, platinum level donations, Mark Crilly. And despite the fact that he has donated a lot over the years and written in, I never remember if he's from Novi, Michigan, or Novi, Michigan, or some other pronunciation, N-O-V-I. But there he is, Mark Senes yet another very generous donation. Finally got back to doing my part for film spotting after way too long freeloading. You guys are often praised for how much you help people discover new films, and rightly so, but I'd like to point out how good film spotting is as a podcast in general. There's a fine art to recording a conversation, too off the cuff and it devolves into irrelevant chatter, too scripted and I feel like I'm listening to someone read a prepared statement. Film spotting always strikes just the right balance. I know none of this happens by accident. It's the result of hard work and many years fine-tuning your process. Thanks, as always, for so many hours of listening pleasure. It is the result of some hard work and hopefully a little bit of natural chemistry, but really we have to give a lot of that credit as well, of course, to Joe Dassault, Golden Joe behind the scenes, and anybody will sound better when Sam Van Halgren is pulling all the strings. Cleaning up, the producing, yeah, it makes a big difference. Yeah, Believe really us. just <laughs> planning out the format of the show. For sure. Having Sam really take on that role has been a wonder. Our last bit here from Laura Ellis, Dade City, Florida. Everybody knows Laura Ellis because she was the star, sorry Chris Klemek, of our top five James Bond tropes. She says, you cannot imagine my surprise and delight to hear that you use my letter to formulate your top five for James Bond. I was honored, and I will proudly wear my film spotting t-shirt when I'm someplace where it will be noticed, like a movie theater, a theme park, or maybe the Navy Pier the next time I make it to Chicago. I have re-upped, in a sense, giving you a donation and keeping with the time I spend listening to film spotting. Please accept this as a token of my appreciation of what you do. You have deepened my appreciation for film, and I look forward to broadening my horizons further. By the way, Adam, have you thought of doing your film classes on video and presenting them on YouTube? You can reach a whole new group of people and perhaps develop the curriculum in a different way, maybe more in keeping with the idea of film itself. Stay well, you guys, and thanks again. It is a great notion. A lot of people have written in and said, I really want to take that class you're teaching in the summer at the University of Chicago's Graham School, but I live in some other country. And Josh, you've been there now a couple of years. You've made a guest appearance or two, and you know that it is a class where there's a little bit of lecture, but then we watch a movie Mm -hmm. and then we discuss that movie. And the watching part, we'd have to work around that somehow. That wouldn't be that compelling, obviously, watching on YouTube. You could incorporate clips the way you do in class, But that's a good point. And the discussion afterwards is usually pretty interesting. So if I'm doing my job, so it is something to probably consider if there was a way to get people in who could participate, whether it was via Skype or via some kind of conference call, there's really no reason why they couldn't watch the movie ahead of time and then be part of that discussion. So something... I will think about, I'll certainly talk about with the University of Chicago. Thanks to Laura, thanks to Mark, thanks to everybody for your amazing comments and your amazing generosity. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Bonjourno, Film Spotting listeners! This is Lieutenant Matt Singer from the Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit Podcast, and on the 100th episode of our show, Captain Allison Wilmore and I spin a tale that takes place once upon a time in Nazi-occupied France. 
It's the SVU review of Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. Plus, with 2015 winding down, it's time to give out the annual Smoovie Awards in all the weirdest and most fun categories we can think of. To listen to the show, find us in iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. Filmspotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable. The art house is now in your house. Hey, this is Mark Duplass, and you're listening to Film Spotting. What's up, Jitters? Well, if you're not going to talk, I'm going to have to fill the silence with another excruciating story by Margot Dunn. Let's see, I could tell you about my recent customer service experience changing internet service providers. I like that one. Or how about the time I saw that woman who looked exactly like my friend Monica, but it wasn't Monica, it was a total stranger. It was also named Monica. Made it kind of interesting. It's great. This is Film Spotting. It's top five time. A year ago, we were sharing our 2014 discoveries, and my number one was the actress in that clip, Carrie Coon, playing Ben Affleck's loyal, cynical sister Margot in David Fincher's Gone Girl. A good candidate for this year's discoveries list was actually in that film as well, Lola Kirk. She was a favorite pick among listeners when you put out a request, Josh, on Twitter last week. People were recommending her performance alongside Greta Gerwig in Noah Baumbach's Mistress America. I love that movie, and I'm a big fan of Lola Kirk's performance as well. And there were other popular responses we saw on Twitter. Yeah, Alicia Vikander, as we said, came up a lot. Also, the score for It Follows by Disaster Piece. Yeah, an honorable mention for me. Has this uh, John Carpenter Halloween-esque feel to it. There was lots of love for Golden Brick candidates like Joel Petrikas of Buzzard and also the star of that film, Joshua Burge. Slow West director John McLean got some nods, as well as the men's John McGarry. And then Taika Waititi of What We Do in the Shadows. He's the co-director and one of the stars there. And to be honest, a whole bunch of names that uh, we both need to discover yet. For sure. We still have much to catch up with this year. Thank you to all of our listeners for their suggestions. I will mention... The disclaimers off the top, some of them already covered. Alicia Vikander, not going to make my list. She had a big year in 2015 with Ex Machina. She was also in The Man from Uncle, Burnt, The Danish Girl, which I believe is out now. She was my number one best supporting actress at our 2012 rap party. So I've been all in. That was for, for Anna, Anna Karenina, Karenina yeah. which I didn't love, even though Joe Wright's visual style is pretty phenomenal and she is phenomenal in that film so definitely wasn't surprised by her great performance in Ex Machina there won't be any of those brick contenders some of those names we mentioned Sean Baker would also be included from Tangerine Marielle Heller and Belle Powley the star of Diary of a Teenage Girl definitely would have been in strong contention otherwise and I did also exclude surprises which I think are a little bit different than discoveries and I think that may confuse people a little bit but for example me seeing Kristen Stewart in Olivier Asayas's Clouds of Sils Maria and thinking she gave a great performance, that was more of a surprise than a discovery. I have a relationship with Kristen Stewart aware as an her. actress, was very aware of her, and was aware that she could do some good work. I liked her in Adventureland. Yes, there are many more performances I probably wasn't a huge fan of or didn't even see, but that was more of a surprise than a discovery. Another one, Paul Dano. I think he's great as a young Brian Wilson in Love and Mercy. I've never been a huge fan of Dano, so a pleasant surprise. But again, not really a discovery for me. What about you, Josh? 
Well, at number five, I'm going with one of those actresses I mentioned earlier that I have on this list, and it's Lily James, the star of Cinderella. I was somewhat familiar with her from Downton Abbey. She's had a small part there. It's been growing. Not one that I'd say showcases her all that well. She's fine in it. But here, Kenneth Branagh handed this live-action Disney adaptation completely over to her, pretty much put it on her shoulders And she ran with it. I think talking about surprises, the whole movie itself to me was a very pleasant 2015 surprise. Where do you live, Mr. Kit? At the palace. My father's teaching me his trade. You're an apprentice? Of a sort. That's very fine. Do they they treat you well? Better than I deserve, most likely. And you? They treat me as well as they're able. I'm sorry. It's not your doing. Nor yours either, I'll bet. It's not so very bad. Others, others have it worse, I'm sure. We must simply have courage and be kind, mustn't we? Yes. <laughs> You're right. This is a very traditional take exactly on the fairy tale, but James, she plays that tone perfectly. I would say she's she's guileless without being naive. She's soft-hearted, but not sentimental. And it's a decidedly feminine performance, but not in a way that ever struck me as weak or damselly in distress at all. So I'm eager to see what Lily James does in the future. Found out today she's going to be in Edgar Wright's next film. Love which it. is until 2017. It's called Baby Driver. Damselly. Trademark, Josh Larson. Damselly. <laughs> How do you spell that? No, I like it. My number five is Mark Rylance, who plays Rudolph Abel in the 1950s Cold War spy thriller Bridge of Spies, of course, from director Steven Spielberg, co-written by the Coen brothers, a movie I missed out on talking about. I was off the week that this came up on the show. Josh, you reviewed it with Michael Phillips, but... Rylance certainly doesn't need the recognition from me. The New York Film Critics Circle just over the weekend awarded him Best Supporting Actor. Most prognostications I've seen, those various award sites, peg him as a lock. That seems to be a given at this point that he will get an Oscar nomination. But he was brand new to me. I knew the name because... From 1995 to 2005, he was the first artistic director of Shakespeare's Globe Theater in London. I was in London back in 95, so I remember the news, but I never did see him on stage. And I haven't seen any of his other screen roles. Angels and Insects was in 1995, the other Boleyn Girl in 2008. I do remember some buzz back in 2001 about the movie Intimacy, which is about a man and woman who meet once a week for no-strings-attached sex and one of the big controversies or one of the big discussion points around that film was how it supposedly had unsimulated sexual acts. So that piqued my interest, Josh. Don't look at me. That's stuck in the mind, huh? Yeah, it did. But I didn't see it. So Bridge of Spies was my first exposure to him. And I just watched it recently, put it in, even though it's 130 minutes. I started it one night at midnight. And I really didn't expect it to carry me through. I had pretty low expectations for it, despite the Coen brothers, despite Hanks and Spielberg. I know it got generally favorable reviews, but I just wasn't excited about the movie. And I was riveted for all 130 minutes. And I think Rylance plays such a crucial role because the whole story pivots on our begrudging respect, or at least empathy, for his character, who, let's be clear, is a Russian spy. He is trying to bring down America at a very charged time at a very scary time in our country. And he's so reserved and understated and Rylance makes Abel a patriot and a professional 
and a man of dignity. And it's because we recognize all those things in him that we're willing to go along with how far Tom Hanks's James Donovan is willing to go as a lawyer to help him. I don't think without this performance, we would otherwise. And I love that Abel has a line in the movie, a punchline basically, that he says, I think, three different times. All three times, it caught me totally by surprise and made me laugh out loud when he delivers it because he never delivers it as a punchline. He delivers it as a genuine question, as if it was the only possible response to what Hanks has said to him in those moments. It's called acting, and in his case, it's great acting. How did we do in there? Uh, Not too good. Apparently, you're not an American citizen. That's true. And according to your boss, you're not a Soviet citizen either. Well, the boss isn't always right, but he's always the boss. Unfortunately, Bridge of Spies, I think, might still be in theaters in some cities, but otherwise isn't available on DVD or streaming yet, so you may have a little bit of a wait. But he is going to be starring in another Spielberg movie, according to IMDb, The BFG, Big Friendly Giant, taken from a Roald Dahl novel. Bill Hader and Rebecca Hall also star in that. That's slated for July 2016. Can't wait for that one. So Rylance's performance is one I, I want to revisit because what I was going back and forth on while being completely riveted by him in the moment is, is this one of those performances that's showy by being incredibly still? You know, he yeah, just, he just gravi- everything gravitates to him. And it's certainly, like you said, it keeps you captivated. And, you know, the way the praise he's getting, uh, I'm going to, for now, lean towards Great. that as well. All right. My number four is Miroslav Slavoshpitsky. He's the director of The Tribe. This is a film from Ukraine that was on our Golden Brick shortlist. I gave it a brief review on episode 545 this year. Now, I wasn't entirely convinced by the nihilism that defined the movie, but without a doubt, Slavoj Pitsky, he's an audacious filmmaker, definitely someone to watch. Uh, This is set at a dismal and abusive Ukrainian boarding school for deaf students, and it unfolds entirely in sign language. And I mean, no subtitles, no voiceovers, no cues like that for you to understand what's going on. So it's strictly visual or, you know, sound design does come into play too. This is constructed of long single takes. They often involve elaborate tracking shots. So altogether, it's this deeply immersive viewing experience. It's it's the sort of movie that I usually gravitate towards where you can clearly feel the filmmaker's hands on it. The Tribe was Slobospitsky's feature debut and his next film, Luxembourg, is in production now. I don't know much more about it than that, hmm. though. For my number four, I'm going to keep it in the spy movie family. During all of that son-daughter-of-bond poll question nonsense we did a while back, how did we not include the actress who basically stole Mission Impossible 5 Rogue Nation as Ilsa Faust, Rebecca Ferguson? And this is where our producer, Sam, is listening right now, screaming at his computer (laughs) because we said actors are actresses who were under 25. And yes, Sam. You are right that Rebecca Ferguson just turned 32. Oh, okay. So it wasn't technically eligible. I guess it depends when Bond had this hookup over the course of his illustrious spy career. Okay, fine. Sure, she was also born and raised in Sweden, but her mother is English if we needed those bona fides as well. She's an actress who has been in various TV series and some TV movies going back to 1999, 2000. She was the lead in the British drama The White Queen, which I didn't see. She got a Golden Globe nomination for that, and she was in the 2014 version of Hercules, which I don't know how we didn't review that, Josh. I tried. Yeah. She is every bit Ethan Hunt's equal 
in Rogue Nation. And I don't mean we should be surprised at that because she's a woman. It's no kind of novelty. I mean that it's wonderful that Christopher McQuarrie, as the director and writer, allowed for another spy, male or female, to be just as impossibly skilled as Hunt. And Ferguson herself, in an interview I saw, calls the Ilsa Faust character, a feminine version of Ethan Hunt. It adds a ton of mystery. You really hope that they'll end up joining forces because they're both such badasses, but you aren't sure for most of the movie whether or not she's in fact just using Ethan. And we get some amazing action sequences as well, like their opening scene together, that dungeon dance they do, where they just show this incredible physical chemistry. The opera house sequence, of course, the motorcycle chase that comes later, that insane move she does where she jumps onto a guy from the front, spins over him and behind him, and then stabs him. We've never met before, right? For me, they could kick Cruz out at this point. And I say this with a ton of respect for Tom Cruise <laughs> and a ton of respect for where the Mission Impossible franchise is out right now. But they could get rid of him and turn it over to Ferguson as Ilsa Faust. And I don't think anybody would complain too much other than, you know, taking another American job away and giving it to a Brit as if James Bond wasn't enough. If you haven't seen it yet. Rogue Nation is available on DVD and Blu-ray and for purchase on various streaming platforms. In terms of her career, she is definitely busy at the moment. Four different movies in some state of production or slated for release in 2016, including another spy movie, Despite the Falling Snow and Stephen Freer's Florence Foster Jenkins with Meryl Streep. Ferguson plays the title character in that one. And The Girl on the Train, a thriller with Emily Blunt, is coming out. So we will be seeing a lot more of Rebecca Ferguson. I'd be fine with that bit of recasting. She was an honorable mention for me. At number three, I've got Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. I discovered Sharon Jones and her band courtesy of Barbara Koppel's documentary about her that played at this year's Toronto International Film Festival. It's called Miss Sharon Jones. Now, she and the Dap Kings, they've been around a while. They've just never broken out huge, but they absolutely deserve more attention. She has the ferocity and the energy of James Brown, one of her acknowledged heroes, and the dance moves and the backup band to match. Now, of course, if I'd been listening to our own show I was more say, closely, I would discovery have, from January 2014. I would have here, discovered Josh. her about 18 months earlier. It was episode 474. This was our Wolf of Wall Street slash American Hustle debate show. I guess I was just discombobulated <laughs> by your praise for Wolf of uh-huh. Wall Street. To, Another uh, great Wall Street. To movie. notice the music. It, like the big it, short. It also made me think, you know, the big short is kind of like the Wolf of Wall Street's little brother. Annoying little brother. No wonder I didn't like it. None of them are as cool as Jordan Belfort, that's for sure. Either way, I own Sharon Jones' albums now, 100 Days, 100 Nights. I learned the hard way, and I just bought her new one. It's a holiday soul party. That's what we're playing on this very show. We are indeed. I was aware of my number five, Mark Rylance, but never saw his work. As I said, I literally didn't know Rebecca Ferguson existed before MI5. My number three is a little bit muddier. Amy Schumer for Trainwreck. I had, of course, seen her perform stand-up on TV. I've actually seen her perform stand-up live here in Chicago, and I have watched multiple episodes of her Comedy Central show, Inside Amy Schumer. But Trainwreck was the first time any of us were seeing her in a movie that she is the star of and that she also wrote. And even though it's certainly a comedy and often hilarious, it really is, she has multiple dramatic scenes and moments that she absolutely delivers on. Just breathe. It's fine. Who wants to have kids? Like right now. People talk about that. Not really. It's fine. I don't know anyone that talks about that. He's great. It's normal. 
I think Aaron's great. I really like him. Can you tell the members of Heaven's Gate in there to relax? No, he's too nice. He's not too nice. Yes, he is. He's too nice for me. You know it. No, I'm, I no. He's the perfect amount of nice that you deserve. Yeah, but you know what? There's deal breakers across the board with him. Like the sex is good. It's like really good. Like it's it's great, but it's not like the best I've ever had. You know? You're right. You don't want best sex that you've ever had, guy. No, you want to stay with the best you've ever had, guy. No, you don't. That's a creepy guy. You don't want to be with that guy. Best sex that you've ever had, guy, is in jail. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I've been thinking about maybe reaching out to him. <laughs> We've done a top five about comedians who have made the transition to the big screen and to drama. She's not alone in this regard, but there's a real lack of self-consciousness in those heavy moments of vulnerability, a nuance where she's not overdoing the emotion. She hits multiple notes at once. I think the funeral scene in particular is one that stands out in the movie, but there are many others as well that are less heavy. There's nothing listed for her right now. On IMDb, I don't know if she's just so busy with all the other things in her life that she hasn't auditioned or taken on any other movie roles, but I am really excited to see what's next for her. I was overall mixed on Trainwreck, actually, and I mostly blame the director, Judd Apatow, for that, but I want to see what she can do and what she's in next, and I really hope that she gets to test herself and play a variety of roles, whether they're straight comedy, straight drama, or they're a combination of the two like we get in Trainwreck. You can see Trainwreck if you haven't caught up with Amy Schumer's performance yet. It's available for streaming, rental, or purchase, and it's also out on DVD and Blu-ray. My Trainwreck pick, which I've got as an honorable mention, John Cena. Yeah. Oh, I mean, he, he's he so good. Be, he, I agree with everything you say about Schumer, but he might be the funniest well, person in the movie. He is the funniest person in the movie, and he's the scene stealer of the year, perhaps, or at oh, least yeah. in the top five. I do have to point out, as I was talking about Schumer's auditions, and I want to see what she does next, she has a great bit in her recent comedy special where she talks about doing just that. And she says in New York, she auditions for the role of cute girl wearing khakis. In LA, she auditions for the role of girl getting gastric bypass and gets mistaken for Gilbert Grape's mom. So (laughs) Schumer, keenly aware of her physical image and uh, drawing attention to that and that problem for many women and trying to kind of change public perception of that issue, which is a wonderful thing. Obviously a joke referencing that, but a really talented comedian and actress. She's great. My number two is an actress as well, Tayana Paris from Chirac. Like Lily James in Cinderella, there's a good chance that Chirac wouldn't work half as well without Paris's lead performance as Lissa Strada. This is the South Side Chicago woman who leads a sex strike until the men in her neighborhood get rid of their guns. What's especially impressive is that Paris negotiates both the really angry tragedy that's at the bottom, at the root of this film, and also its heightened comedy, which is really broad in parts. She handles both of those equally well, um, as well as the production numbers that essentially make this mostly a musical. So given the range shown here, this should be a star-making performance. Mm. I really hope it is for her. Now, we have seen her before. In 2014's Dear White People, she played an aspiring internet celebrity who was also a college student. Uh, here in Chirac, she she gives the sort of, it's a poetry slam performance that her character there in Dear White People would have absolutely killed for. So this is really quite the turn. Man, you really think something like that could bring peace? Y'all know the power we have over them withholding just a day. A week. Ooh. Imagine a month. A year. Oh, they gonna bring the peace. Suppose, suppose that the men just dump us. If we all hold out, who can they go to? The boss. Them hoes over there. Well, we will enlist them too. For me, one of the most fun 
aspects of doing this discoveries list is it gives me an opportunity to praise movies I didn't get to review, like I mentioned with Bridge of Spies and also Brooklyn, which opened in limited release in the U.S. the first week of November. I'm going with the Brooklyn Boys, John Crowley, who's the director, and Emery Cohn, who is the co-star. I remember seeing the trailer for Brooklyn several months ago, and I basically wrote it off for no good reason at all, just making that snap judgment you make when you see a trailer. When I do see trailers, I try to avoid them, but I saw it, and it just looks sentimental and sappy, maybe a little bit too melodramatic, despite the fact that it starred Saoirse Ronan, who is a very talented actress, and she plays an Irish immigrant who lands in Brooklyn in the 1950s and gets a job and does eventually get into a relationship with the Emery Cohn character, but then when she returns home, at one point, things become a little bit more complicated, having to choose between whether she wants to be in America or back home in Ireland and which man she ultimately wants to be with. Like I said, on board with Ronan as an actress, and it's written by Nick Hornby, whose work I generally appreciate, but still wasn't excited to see this movie. Then I started seeing tweets from some of our colleagues about how over-the-moon crazy they were for it. And I thought to myself, really, Brooklyn? They can't all be right. Guess what? They're all Right. It's got a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes and 87% on Metacritic. Richard Brody in The New Yorker does have a very astute critique of the movie. I don't really disagree with anything he says, except for the part where he doesn't fall for the movie as hard as I did. Two big reasons why I fell for it. Crowley's direction and the acting of Cone. Crowley was a theater director and probably still is a theater director. He's done a lot of Martin McDonough stuff like The Pillow Man and A Behanding in Spokane on Broadway. He's made a few movies, the 2003 film Intermission, Andrew Garfield's movie Boy A in 2007, 2008, he did a drama called Is Anybody There? And in 2013, I remember Closed Circuit coming out. We did not see it or talk about it, but a thriller with Eric Bana and Rebecca Hall. It turns out, Josh, I have seen some of his work on screen prior to this, though. I didn't realize that he had directed a couple episodes of season two of True Detective on HBO, but otherwise unknown to me. Emery Cohn is an actor who appeared in the movie After School and The Place Beyond the Pines in 2012, but certainly don't remember him. Bit part, he's a fresh face to me, and there's a real Brando, James Dean thing about him. His rhythms, his physicality, the way he says every sentence like he's just a little bit scared the person he's saying it to is going to call him an idiot or slap him on the face or both. And it might have been my review of the Grand Budapest Hotel. I wrote a little bit about it on Letterboxd, and I made a comment about having a huge smile on my face for most of the movie, at least the first part of the movie, and then that smile kind of going away as the movie went on, and at least one snarky reader asked if I really watch movies with a stupid smile on my face. Well, Josh, yeah, I do, actually. I think we all do. I was going to say, it's probably it pretty not. common. Yeah, I mean, I would hope it's, it's not, common. even if it isn't a blatant comedy that's trying to make you laugh, there are a lot of movies when they're working that provoke some type of physical response. And during Brooklyn, I caught myself grinning from ear to ear every single time Cone and Ronan were in a scene together. Their playful banter and the barter of two courting lovers, it's just so damn sweet and endearing. You're in a good mood, huh? Yes. Why? It's just, I like how you're being. I don't know the word, though, when you go along with everything. Amenable. Yeah, amenable. Okay. So why you being amenable? Can we go see a movie this week when you're not in night class? I'll sign up for two movies. Really? Yes. Even if the first date is a disaster, I'll give it another chance. Admit it. Every single one of you 
without the benefit of seeing Cohn and Ronan or the rich production design and subtle cinematography, you were smiling listening to that scene. That's how good Cohn is, and that's how good Brooklyn is, which I believe is still out in theaters at the moment if you haven't seen it. And what's next for Crowley? Nothing listed on IMDb at the moment, but certainly we're going to be hearing more from him, especially as Brooklyn may be a Best Picture contender. Speaking of the Oscars, Cohn is getting some Best Supporting Actor buzz. AwardsCircuit.com had him at number 17, so in the third tier of contenders. But he's in the conversation, and he's got four 2016 movies in post-production and one filming. I think that one is War Machine. It is listed as a satire of America's war with Afghanistan with a focus on the people running the campaign. Brad Pitt's in it, Will Poulter's in it, and it's directed by your favorite, the director of The Rover, David Michaud. Well, despite that, I'm not smiling because you just squeezed two picks into one. Yeah, I did. You just come up with a snappy title and you can do that, huh? Brooklyn Boys. That you umbrella um, um, the under. and Okay, all right. Mm. Good to know. You're on to me. Number one, I'm just going to stick with one guy here animator Don Hertzfeld for me. Now, others have been following his work for a while, but the rapturous praise, similar to your experience with Brooklyn, that uh, greeted his 2015 short World of Tomorrow, everybody was going on about this since it played first at Sundance. That's what brought him to my attention. It's about a toddler who receives a visit from her adult clone who's contacting the girl from a few centuries in the future. The clone offers this, it's a seemingly cheery, vision of extended life, but overall the short acts as this really morbidly witty retort to what we have going on today, this continual quest for a fountain of youth. The stock figure drawings dominate the aesthetic here, but Hertzfeld puts them, they're so beautifully rendered and given such great details that they work on their own, but Hertzfeld also puts them in these really mournful milieus that they're they're just existentially shuddering what's taking place in this short. He envisions, for example, this brainless clone body that's left to age while on display at a museum. There are also these solar-powered robots on the moon that they've been programmed to follow the light of the sun across the moon, and they just continue to do it long after their human supervisors have abandoned them. So things like that are what, what he's come up with here. Now, Hertzfeld has directed a number of other shorts that I now need to watch, but really, somebody get this guy a feature. That's what I would love to see. I know he has a 60— If he wants to take it. Well, right. Maybe maybe he just loves this format. Uh, and he does have a 63-minute version of It's Such a Beautiful Day. But, you know, I'd love to see him give that full feature length yeah. a go. So we really have had a little bit of a running joke on the show this past year because you saw World of Tomorrow— all of it 17 minutes and I started World of Tomorrow and somehow didn't finish it. I had like nine minutes left and we had some fun at my expense. But for this list, really because of listener Aaron West on Facebook, he was one of the first couple people who responded to my solicitation for some 2015 discovery picks. He mentioned Don Hertzfeld's World of Tomorrow and that prompted me. I knew I had to see it before you found the eight we minutes? sat down. I found the additional nine minutes. I have now seen all 17 minutes of World of Tomorrow and Josh Hertzfeld is my number one as well. All right. You articulated it perfectly. The only thing I'll add, my favorite little bit in the movie is there's a part where Emily, this is, as you said, her clone. It's the third generation, I think, Emily, who is talking to her. She says, our more recent history is often just comprised of watching other people watching view screens. She's talking about what life is like now and the way it has been. And... That's something just taken out of context, I think, resonates with all of us. We think about how much of our lives we spend looking at our iPhone or our iPad or any other device, the television, whatever. But in context, it takes on a whole new meaning. The line right before it 
is where Emily explains that the view screens allow us to watch any event in history. And I think it just speaks to the lament that this movie has for the passage of time, for our own mortality, and for nostalgia. It really is about the power of nostalgia. If you think about it, if we had that ability, I think most of us would spend the first hour or so looking at really famous world events, maybe trying to relive those or try to see some detail that we missed out on, maybe find some clue to a mystery. But after that hour, I think we'd probably all just devote the rest of the time to watching ourselves. And I think there is a certain narcissism in that, but also watching the people we love and our interaction in that. And so when you factor that in, you can imagine that the future might be a case where we'd all just be looking at those screens all day long, lost in the haze of nostalgia and memory. So there's just some beautiful touches like that, some real poignancy to this movie, all 17 minutes of it. So I thank Aaron for prompting me to see it. And I thank David Ehrlich as well. We've mentioned this critic over the years a few times on the show. For at least the past few years, he has put together a Vimeo video, which is his top 25 films of 2015. No narration, no commentary. It all just comes in the editing and the musical choices and it's about a 13 minute video we will link to it in our show notes at filmspotting.net he was one of the first big champions of this film and spoiler alert it comes in at number two on his list so despite being a short absolutely fair game for your favorite film of 2015 and it's david Ehrlich's number two and speaking of vimeo that's how you can also see world of tomorrow i think the only way to see it is to rent it on vimeo we'll put that link in our show notes as well those are our top five discoveries of 2015 josh any honorable mentions so you said we weren't going to put golden brick contenders on this list sure. and if we had sean baker for tangerine the mm-hmm. director there he would have been on it you'll be hearing plenty of more from me on that film as the year comes to a close here. Lola Kirk, I did think about from Mistress America. She's just so perfectly paired there with Greta Gerwig. And Taika Waititi, who was mentioned to the director and also an actor on What We Do in the Shadows. He gave maybe my favorite performance in that Golden Brick nominee. Earlier in the show, I mentioned some of those female performances that really stood out to me, whether supporting or lead. Lily James was an honorable mention from your list, Josh, and Cinderella. Lola Kirk, we touched on from Mistress America. Nina Haas in Phoenix, the Christian Petzold film. And I thought about Petzold as well as a director. He was new to me despite having made several films. Of course, Dakota Johnson for Fifty Shades of Grey, despite the fact that I had seen her in The Social Network. I didn't realize that until this year. And listener Charles Gustine, I hope I'm saying that right, on Facebook, pointed out Raffi Cassidy, who plays Athena in the Brad Bird movie Tomorrowland, a movie that worked for me more than it probably should have and more than it did for many people, but certainly has a pretty terrible last 20 to 30 minutes. But she is really, really good in that film. So I was glad to be reminded of her. I suppose we have to count Ho Shao Shen as a discovery for us this year. That's in true. The Assassin, not new to world cinema, sadly new to us. And then finally, this was almost my number one. And then I didn't want to get called out even more by you, Josh, for cheating. But just like with Big Star last year, documentaries exposing me to bands or artists or whoever, real-life subjects that I otherwise wasn't familiar with. And there were four this year that stood out that I've recently caught up with. Seymour Bernstein in Seymour and Introduction, the pianist and piano teacher that Ethan Hawke documents in his film, Iris Apfel, who is the fashionista, for lack of a better term, and collector that Albert Mazels in his final film documents Barry Crimmins in Call Me Lucky, the Bobcat Goldthwait documentary, a comedian whose name I knew from probably mentions on WTF, but hadn't actually seen him before, didn't know his story. And 
the big one for me, of all the films we've mentioned, the film that I probably love the most is actually the Amy Winehouse documentary, Amy. And probably a little bit more of a surprise than a discovery because certainly I was familiar with Amy Winehouse, but never gave her a fair shot. Wrote her off probably like a lot of people we see in the film as some kind of cultural joke. Didn't pay attention to the music. The documentary is incredible. It's one of the best films of the year and made me think about her and my relationship to her in a completely new light. So that would have been four picks in one pick. I'm, it real, would have been. I'm really glad. Not even you would do that. Well, you don't prob- put it past me. Have, don't put actually. it past me. I did relegate them to honorable mention status. Again, those are our top five discoveries of 2015. Send us your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. Or leave us a voicemail. It's been a while since we've gotten a good voicemail. 312-264-0744. On Twitter, you can find us at filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm at Larson on film. And we're also at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Out wide this weekend in the heart of the sea, the true story that inspired Melville's Moby Dick, Ron Howard directs and legend Tom Hardy starring opposite Tom Hardy as 60s gangsters, the craze. One of my most anticipated movies of the fall, I believe, because of Tom Hardy in that lead role, that dual role. But because of the reaction to it so far, I'm now a little more lukewarm on seeing it as we're in the hustle bustle of trying to finish Falling all the big movies further of the year. down the must-see list yeah i don't know if it's going to happen out in limited release almost there this is from chicago's kartemquin films a documentary about elderly outsider artists getting his first exhibition and the controversy that follows the danish girl starring one of the discoveries of the year for many listeners alicia vikander and eddie redmayne and don verdeen Napoleon Dynamite director Jared Hess is back with Sam Rockwell, Jermaine Clement, Amy Ryan, and others. Is this one you just really wanted to see or you did see at Sundance? I did see at Sundance. That's right. And I can recommend you it can. for Jared Hess diehards. Oh. <laughs> if you know that. what that means. Okay. I don't. The Keeping Room with Britt Marling and Haley Steinfeld set during the last days of the Civil War. Can't wait to see that. My guy, Michael Fassbender, film spotting madness champion. Michael Fassbender starring opposite Marion Cotillard in Macbeth. And the movie I heartily recommend, but Josh does not. The Big Short out in Chicago and limited release this weekend. Wolf of Wall Street Jr. I'm good with that. I'm good with that because that movie is also a masterpiece. Next week on the show, Whoa, yeah, I'm throwing out the L elevated word. Yeah. big short to masterpiece. That's how strongly I feel about oh, it, Josh. I love that. I love it. Next week, part one of our top 10 of 2015 roundtable with our usual suspects, Michael Phillips and Scott Tobias. We will have all sorts of other guest voices in the mix as well. And we have to tease this. You won't hear it on radio, but if you subscribe to the Film Spotting podcast, we are planning to give you hot off the presses straight out of the theater, we're going to see Star Wars next week and post the show probably on Wednesday. It looks like, yeah, the embargo breaks sometime in the wee hours of Wednesday morning. We will post our immediate reactions to Star Wars The Force Awakens next Wednesday. Unless it's so awesome we're left speechless. It could happen. Just we'll post silence. It could happen. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music comes from my 2015 discovery, one of them, Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. It's from their new album, It's a Holiday Soul Party. More information is at SharonJonesAndTheDapKings.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.